I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Policymakers in Asia, the United States, and around the world are being confronted headfirst with a number of policy challenges in the world of crypto. Most obviously, the sheer proliferation of digital assets with very different qualitative and even legal features, from stablecoins and CBDCs to public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And it's all generating interesting questions about just how analogous this new spate of innovation is to what had powered the development of the internet. For some, it's all pushing towards a new kind of internet of value and a revolution in financial services. But even cheerleaders note that what can be described as an increasing specialization and even fragmentation in the infrastructures being designed to build this new value is arising. So I was pleased to see a new article from Citibank, the regulated Internet of Value, popping up in my inbox and tackling the issue head on. And I've invited the author, FinTech Beat veteran Tony McLaughlin, onto the show to talk about it with Zai Masari, a partner with the Wall Street law firm of Davis Polk. Together, they're more than just on the forefront of finance, but helping to shape the terms of a debate ranging across boardrooms and government offices around the world. Zaid, Tony, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Hey, it's great to be here, Chris. Nice to see you. Tony, you've been a, an interesting voice and, dare I say, a cautious voice in the past about CBDCs and, and raised some yellow flags along with uh, the Financial Times editor, Isabella Kaminska, uh, the last time you were on the show. But here you're taking things, I guess, a step forward by addressing the implications of what you describe as the tokenization thesis. Uh, what exactly is that thesis, and am I incorrect in interpreting it as at least in part a commentary on the relative uh, advantages and disadvantages of token-based CBDCs uh, and account-based CBDCs? Yeah, indeed, Chris. I don't know if it's a step forward or a step back, but really what we're trying to do is to say that there is this belief out there that tokens in in the blockchain sense of the word may be a superior technology for the representation of all types of digital assets. And if that is the case, then we should examine that thesis very carefully. And, you know, if if tokens are the secret sauce for uh, finance in the future, maybe we want to reflect back on how those tokens get incorporated into the regulated financial system. So tokenization is a term of art, and I think there is slippage at times between how international regulators, uh, market participants, and and lawyers uh, talk about it. Uh, on the one hand, there's this new story about the technical infrastructure and digital ledger technologies. And uh, another is really a, a, an old story about what is being represented, about whether or not you're talking about liabilities, the traditional example being banknotes or bearer instruments like golden coins from medieval times. You know, After all, when you had gold, there was no liability. You, you either had the half dozen pieces of gold with an intrinsic value or you didn't. 
So what exactly does tokenization mean in terms of the framing of this regulatory issue you're trying to explore? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I hate to use natural language in front of lawyers, but tokenization just means representation. And we can represent legal instruments with any given technology. The Bitcoin white paper um, defines an electronic coin as a, as, a, as a series or a chain of digital signatures. So public key cryptography combined with a, a database where everyone can agree or a ledger where everyone can agree the order of transactions and what transactions are valid seems like a good representation technology or tokenization technology. And not only the, the representation of those um, instruments in digital format, in digital, you know, in a way which is much better than Lego, but the smart contracting layer on top, which makes it programmable. So you end up with this infrastructure. You, it's hard to escape the comparison between Ethereum and the, and the normal financial system. Ethereum is always on. The financial system isn't. Ethereum is inherently multi-asset. The financial system is siloed. And Ethereum is programmable and the financial system is not in the same in the same way. So obviously there's lots of issues with public blockchains, but this is what I mean by the tokenization thesis, which is there is this idea that DLT type digital representation or tokenization might lead to a qualitatively different financial system. And that's a testable hypothesis. And in this space, testable hypotheses, I think, are thin on the ground. We're heavy on claims, but we can test this. We can see if actually the DLT method of tokenization is superior or not. Zai, so we have this new representation technology. What's your view on this? Uh, what does the tokenization thesis mean from the standpoint of regulatory policy? It's really interesting because I think really to answer the question, you have to think about why there is an interplay between, let's say, bearer instruments and account instruments, right? Bearer, bearer instruments are great because they can be transferred among people without the involvement or knowledge of an intermediary. They're bad for the same reason, right? We don't have a way to prove that transfers are valid, that people aren't stealing the bearer instruments, that they're valid instruments in, in terms of the chain of ownership, right? And so I think the question that Tony's asking is the right one, which is, is DLT, for a bunch of reasons, a solution to the downsides of bearer instruments while preserving the upside, which I think is potentially really significant and really is an open financial system rather than a series of closed financial systems, right? And that is a really interesting question, and I would like to see if it works. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, depending on how you interpret history, uh, of, of course, tokens have always been around. You know, it, it, it's just a question of what those tokens mean or what tokenization means when you're trying to create a kind of a bearer instrument for a, a digital age, right? Um, now, you, you come up with a pretty interesting framework, right, where you're trying to think all this through and, and by which you're, you're, you're trying to tackle 
again, the world of digital assets and, and you veer away from traditional nomenclature of central bank digital currencies and stablecoins. And, and instead, you like thinking through this tokenization issue from this framing or standpoint of regulated liabilities, uh, which, which as a law professor obviously caught my eye. Um, what do you mean here? And, and, and as, you know, as, as a banker, why is, why is this important? So I, I see the, the harsh race between different kinds of digital money as, uh, you know, those five forces in the race. And what are they? One is central bank money. The second is commercial bank money, which happens to be dominant at the moment. But will it be in the future? We don't know. The next one is e-money or stored value, kind of PayPal type of money or, or offered by a regulated non-bank. And then we have... Um, you know, the likes of Bitcoin, the public cryptocurrencies, and then stablecoins. So these are the five runners and riders in this horse race. Three of them are regulated liabilities. That's central bank money, commercial bank money, and e-money. You've got a regulated entity. The instrument is known in law, and it's a liability on their balance sheet. Bitcoin, by design, is not a liability because you can't have a world, a trustless world, without liabilities. And stable coins, well, because these things are not yet in law, we don't really know if they're a liability. Um, many stable coin models, if I've got the token, I don't actually have a contractual relationship with the issuer, like I do, for example, in the case of a PayPal account. So it's not clear to me that a stable coin holder um, is holding a liability of a stable coin issuer at this stage in the game. Obviously, there's just so much uh, emphasis put on not only whether or not an asset is tokenized, but also whether or not the overall ledger is is account-based. And account-based meaning, in essence, that there's some kind of intermediary or, or second step needed for, for ver- uh, verifying uh, systems and transactions. Uh, what does this mean for understanding, then, the nature of a regulated liability? It's such a good question. And of course, not the easiest question to answer, right? I think fundamentally or theoretically, as a lawyer, um, it shouldn't matter whether an asset is tokenized or account-based or in some other form. It shouldn't matter what the plumbing um, underlying that asset is to determine what that what it is or what the liability is, um, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, but that being said, I think the the reality in the real world is more complex. And once you change the plumbing, you change how people start to interact with an instrument, whether it's an asset or a liability. And I think that combination of the plumbing and how people interact with it might actually change the nature of the instrument what it's used for, why it's used, and the regulatory and policy considerations that come along with it. Um, so uh, being a lawyer, I'll say the answer is it depends. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually a law student, or actually really a law professor answer. Well, but so, so let's then you know, see what, what kinds of things that, that could depend on, because obviously lots of policymakers and, and, and folks are trying to think through the question, right? Um, one particular particular perspective and, and one that lies in the background of the paper, but, but certainly it's front and center with lots of uh, the folks um, who are very active in the smart contract space, um, but also really active you know, programmers you know, who are trying to think through this notion of programmable money is, is this idea that 
Well, there is a regulated aspect to these currencies, but that 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 regulated layer isn't a a state backed legal layer. Instead, it's a technological layer, right? You know, that's it's it's the program itself. Uh, So, you know, either. Uh, from a legal or, or or policy perspective, you know, when you think about what regulation means on the level of the protocol, right? You know, what does that mean, and how does that push a regulator's um, view as to what is a liability? To me, this is one of the hardest questions that regulators and policymakers are going to face, and you can see it's already coming to a head very quickly in the world of DeFi, right? How do you regulate software as um, an issuer or an entity that's providing a financial service directly to consumers? In my own view, being a U.S. financial regulatory lawyer, um, I don't see that the regulatory framework that we have for financial services fits very well uh, when it comes to applying traditional regulatory principles like consumer protection, disclosure, monetary policy, financial stability, certainly financial crimes regulation to code. It's just not how regulators have thought about it. Um, I think we're seeing a move towards a reckoning of that position. Um, I think regulators and policymakers should tread very carefully, however, because there are far-reaching implications of that approach. Okay, so so you know when you transition, obviously from you know this legal conversation and the legal conversation, and this is why I found the paper you know really interesting, is that you know um, uh, Tony's not really dealing as much with law, but but you know law sort of lurking again in, in the background. But he's really, or, or Tony, you're really thinking about this concept of of an internet of value, right? And you're looking at all the different pieces of the puzzle here, and you're trying to figure out well, well, what does it mean to have this kind of specificity and, and, and variety uh, in the qualitative nature of these digital assets in a, you know, in a world where regulation and, 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 and policy is, is quickly evolving? But you're trying to fit it into this, this larger question as to the internet of value. Maybe you can just sort of walk the listeners through you know, what you're thinking about and, and, and what do these questions mean you know, from a market perspective? Sure, so I'm essentially asking three questions. You know, number one, in the future, is our money going to be regulated or non-regulated? You know, so for example, should we bring instruments like stablecoins into the regulatory perimeter, yes or no? Um, Should we have a good legal framework for public cryptocurrencies or just be content with um, regulating, for example, the exchanges? So question number one is, in the the future, will our money be regulated or non-regulated? Question number two is, in the future, Will our money be liabilities, meaning part of somebody else's balance sheet, a promise to pay, promise to pay the bearer on demand at par value? Or will will it be a non-liability like a Bitcoin, deliberately a non-liability? Or will it be a quasi-liability like a stablecoin? Indeed, as we bring stablecoins into the formal financial system, should stablecoins be regulated liabilities? So regulated issuer a claim of from the holder to the issuer. Um, that's the, the question about how you do bring it into the financial system. Should it be a regulated liability? And the third question, and this is the kind of, for me, interesting one, which is tokens versus accounts. And tokens versus accounts is a kind of fun 
intellectual conversation, but it's clear to me that accounts are really about the recording of liabilities. They're artifacts of double entry bookkeeping. That's why it's about it's about you know a financial institution making a record of its liability towards Chris. And that's the traditional world. All of the traditional regulated instruments at the moment, central bank liabilities, commercial bank liabilities, and e-money, they're only available through accounts. They're only in double-entry bookkeeping land. And the new horses in the race, the Bitcoin and the stablecoins, they're only tokens. They're, and especially for, for like a Bitcoin or a public cryptocurrency, it's not about a liability. But there are those who believe, again, who they, they really believe that in the future, not only money, but all digital assets are best recorded through chains of digital signatures on DLT networks. And that's a thesis, and we can test that thesis. Now, if that is so, if tokens are the secret sauce, then my analysis says we need to apply tokens to the regulated sector, to the regulated liabilities in a coherent way. Does it make sense, especially in the free market US, that the future of digital money is based upon central bank liabilities, a kind of government PayPal? Or if tokens are the secret sauce, can we have a a regulated DLT or constellation of DLTs, which has got central bank money and commercial bank money and e-money and maybe stable coins on the same DLT substrate? And then, and I know this is a very long answer, but What I find kind of interesting about that DLT substrate, like Ethereum, for example, is it's inherently multi-asset. You know, you can have ETH and you can have stable coins and you have uh, crypto kitties and you can have non-fungible tokens on the same substrate. substrate. Whereas in the financial system, in the traditional account-based financial system, you've got the well-known silos. You know, specific infrastructure for specific assets And so the tokenization thesis that maybe in the future the best way to represent digital assets, money, and other types of of regulated assets is tokens on DLTs. Let's test that. But let's not go down a rabbit hole where we imagine that the future of digital money is going to be based upon central bank liabilities. That to me seems to be, I understand why we're here. The whole world reacted against you know, Libra went in one particular direction. But, you know, that's evolved. And the, the new DM proposal is very, very different from the original Libra proposal. And so I think there is an opportunity for the regulated sector to take a step back and say, hey, you know what, if tokenization is the thing, if it gets us to a different type of multi-asset financial infrastructure, let's do that in a joined-up way. To me, your insight is really, really interesting on this point, Tony, because the financial services world is super siloed in its plumbing, right? We've got securities settlement systems, cash settlement systems, clearing systems. They're all separate. They don't talk to each other, um, which actually is a real source of risk. It increases operational risk. It increases settlement risk. It increases time for all of these transactions to take place. And I think both on the institutional side and the consumer side, um, people are looking for better and faster ways to move money, to move value of all sorts, right? Um, And 
I, we could have a theoretical debate about whether DLT is the best technology to solve this problem, but it is a technology that seemed to capture the imagination and minds of enough people, um, and it can be used to solve these problems, right? So you have programmable money and programmable assets that can all ride the same rails. That is a very powerful concept and a super interesting insight from your paper. You know, so how exactly though, Tony, would you go about testing, you know, uh, uh, this? I mean, you know, obviously we have lots of different sandboxes scattered around the world. You have lots of different projects that are being launched um, by different companies, you know, but but what you're kind of pushing at is is ultimately a kind of interoperability, right? Between different kinds of digital assets. But that interoperability is being um, enabled ultimately, if I'm hearing you correctly, through regulation, which is kind of interesting, right? You know, on the, other hand, on the one hand, you want to have lots of different kinds of digital assets. Well, on the other hand, by subjecting them, at least legally, to some kind of regulated regime, right, it, it pushes you towards what you're seeing as, as um, you know, a, a larger internet of, of, of value. I mean, is there a contradiction between those two? Right, you know this, you know that that this idea that ultimately by standardizing them more via, uh, you know, a a shared legal apparatus, that that you're also enabling more um, uh, heterogeneity in in uh, in in the money system. I mean, that that seems like a big thesis to test, and it sounds like a, a thesis that's both, uh, you know, legal in nature, but also technological. Yeah, well, I, I'm not. I know that you're both lawyers, and I'm not saying this just to please lawyers. But you know, law. The, the more important than the computer code is the legal code, and the, the legal instruments come before the computer code. And I'm sorry, but even before the legal code comes, the sovereign right of the nation state to do certain things. You know, it stems from that sovereign sovereign right. So it seems to me that um, you know, in contrast to the the original kind of Bitcoin idea of let's build a world of money that cuts the connection to the social contract, that cuts the ability for the sovereign to say what money is. We should proceed from a different perspective. So, you know, imagine that the Bitcoin white paper had proceeded from this idea of, you know, let's make the world of, uh, of money and finance less siloed, more efficient, more faster. How we get it done um, you're, you're right, Chris, there's a bunch of sandboxes, a bunch of proof of concepts. Um, in the paper, we suggest that central banks make a small pivot, which is if you're going to stand up a DLT, which has got central bank liabilities in it, allow in that same DLT for there to be commercial bank liabilities, allow in that same DLT for there to be e-money liabilities, allow in that DLT to be the regulated liabilities of stablecoin issuers. And then you've got a common substrate for regulated liabilities, but we don't need to stop there because then you can see on the same substrate, let's have regulated assets. Let's have equities and let's have bonds and let's have trade instruments and let's have all of the other types of uh, tokenized assets that we can imagine, but we're imagining them first in law. You know, legal instruments, we've been recording, um, we used to record our liabilities on paper ledgers. Now we record our liabilities on traditional databases. Tomorrow we record our liabilities on DLT. 
Law comes before code. Well, you won't get any arguments from a guy who teaches at a Jesuit law school, even where we uh, have a higher authority. But uh, in all seriousness, this has been a really great discussion. Thanks, Tony and Zai, for making it onto the show. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. And Tony, congrats on the paper. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. CBDCs, even more so than traditional fiat currencies, can be complicated in terms of how they are designed, who can access them, and the ultimate role that they play in monetary value. But the very fact that this complexity is supercharged with similar questions in other species of digital assets not only complicates the policy questions surrounding CBDCs, but also larger aspirations of an internet of value. Now, listening to Zai and Tony certainly leads me to believe that just how attainable or quixotic any internet of value may be is still as much a policy question as it is a technical one. And a key element to the puzzle will be what regulation looks like and whether it can enable interoperability while also serving core societal objectives of safety and soundness. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>